0: Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. I have two pieces that I'd like to share with you tonight. (coughs) If you turn, please, to page 1036. So, the Parsha is Shoftim. Page 1036. Pasek number Tesvov 15. One, 1036 or 1037. Pasek number 15. So, a lot of this Parsha is about the legal system, Jewish law. And about how a court would impose uh, penalties and punishments for various crimes and what kind of testimony is necessary to convict someone of certain crimes. So the Pasuk says like this, Pasuk 15, <laughs> One witness is not sufficient to convict for any sin or trespass in court. Rather, only on the testimony of two witnesses, or three witnesses or more, the fact is established. So that's a very important principle of Jewish law, that when it comes to convicting someone in court, in in Sanhedrin, for example, let's just take the worst case of murder and you're going to convict someone of capital punishment, that requires two eyewitnesses. I just want to point out there's another category of Jewish law which is not in court, but simply establishing what the truth is and there one witness is sufficient. And there are certain cases even in court where one witness is sufficient. But in a criminal case, to be able to convict someone and to give them a punishment in Bezdin, in Sanhedrin, that requires two eyewitnesses. Okay? Two eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses have to be kosher, fit. That means they need to be people who are known to have a reputation of being honest, not to have any ulterior motive in testifying. So certainly, witnesses cannot be paid for their testimony. They cannot have some kind of promise of of how they're going to be treated because of their testimony. That would be invalid. And they have to have no personal connection to the person about whom they are testifying. They can't be a relative. They can't be a close friend. They can't be an enemy. Because that calls into question their testimony. So there are a lot of requirements about what constitutes a valid witness for this purpose. Now, what happens if you have a situation where there's conflicting testimony? Two witnesses say, Ruvain killed Shima. And two other witnesses come and they say, no, Ruvain did not kill Shima. You have a conflict in the testimony. We're assuming that all four of these witnesses are otherwise valid witnesses. What do you do when you have a conflict in testimony? So, the Talmud explains that when you have four valid, two sets of valid witnesses and their testimony conflicts, by the way, even if it's like two, say, Ruvain did kill Shimon, and a hundred say Ruvain did not kill Shimon. Once you have two, two is just as strong as a hundred or a thousand. So you have one set of witnesses saying one thing, the other set of witnesses rebutting them. The Talmud says we simply disregard them all. We, they cancel each other out. We have no way to verify who's telling the truth. And therefore, we can't decide, we cancel it out. Now that's a very, very important principle. Because what that teaches us is that eyewitness testimony is not so reliable. Many people think, and especially people who study the Torah think, but I'm going to adjust that in a moment, think eyewitness testimony. That's the best kind of testimony there could be. How could you possibly disagree with eyewitness testimony? Well, here's what's interesting. It turns out that eyewitness testimony is the least credible testimony that there is. Why? Because people make mistakes. People make lots of mistakes. I'm going to tell you something that you may find hard to believe, but it's true. Across the United States, a lot of people are convicted for crimes, a lot of people are sent for punishment, capital punishment even in the United States, okay, separate subject. And there are um, a lot of people who are convicted who claim that they're innocent. Okay, most people who are convicted claim that they're innocent. Okay, but there are some, not a lot, but some, who are actually able, after they're convicted and in prison, even on death row, to prove that they're innocent. This happened especially when DNA testimony started to be used. So, DNA testimony in certain cases, can be proof positive he didn't do it. Now, they did a study of people who were convicted of a serious crime, and then it was determined that they were wrongly convicted and they were let free. And they did a study what was the testimony that convicted them in the first place. Eyewitnesses. In the overwhelming majority of cases, mm-hmm. it was eyewitness testimony. How could it be? Because people make a mistake, or people have an ulterior motive. It's very common in the American judicial system that, who do you get to testify? Well, you get the guy who is in the cell next to him, who you know, who overhears him. Well, he's already a criminal. Yeah. Right? Or, someone testifies in exchange for lenient treatment, he's getting something in return. The Torah insists on eyewitness testimony but it's not the same as when uh, uh, um, our society talks about eyewitness testimony. Because we're talking about, number one, there have to be two direct eyewitnesses. Number two, They have to be people, like I said before, with a reputation for honesty, not people who have been guilty of any crime, not people who have any incentive or motive to to lie, not people who are related in any way to the person about whom they're testifying. And, in addition, according to the classical laws of testimony, in order for eyewitness testimony to be valid, the witnesses it's not enough if they just see what happened. They have to have given a warning to the person, don't do what you're about to do because if you do it, this is what's going to happen to you, and the warning has to be acknowledged. The person has to say, I hear you, and i'm still going to do it because in other words he could claim i didn't hear them what's the good what's the use of a warning if you don't hear it that kind of eyewitness testimony that is very very different than the kinds of testimony whose convictions are then later overturned and even that kind of eyewitness testimony with all of those rules and all of those safeguards in place. The Talmud tells us that it was extremely rare for a Sanhedrin, for a Jewish court to ever impose the penalty of capital punishment. The Talmud says if it happened more than once in 70 years, it was considered unusual. Alright, so therefore, what do you do? One set of witnesses says he did it. The other set says he did did not do it. They cancel each other out and you discard them all. Okay. Because this is the point I'm trying to make. Neither set necessarily did anything wrong. Neither set necessarily was evil. A person could have legitimately thought that they saw it. They miss they misunderstood what they saw, they were incorrect in what they saw, but people can genuinely come to court and testify, I saw this, and really believe that they saw it, and be wrong. So Jewish law recognizes that in a case where they cancel each other out, we just tell them, go home. We're not, we're not punishing anybody. We're not accusing anybody. We're not trying to decide who's right and who's wrong. Because it could very well be, yes, it could very well be that two people made it up to conspire to, to hurt somebody. But it could very well be that that's not the case. That that a person thought that's what he, he or she saw, he saw. So no one did necessarily did anything evil or wrong. Cancel each other out, go home, and we'll start over. But then the Torah continues, and the next pasuk introduces. You might think it's the same subject, and it will appear to contradict what I just said, but it's actually a new subject. Pasuk number sixteen, Teshiyin. <coughs> when a witness testifies against somebody, we'll call him Ruvain, that he did something wrong. Let's say he murdered Shimon. A witness comes, we're not talking about one, we're talking about two, because one doesn't do anything, it's got to be two. Two witnesses testify that Ruvain killed Shimma. Pasuk 17. Okay. So, the two witnesses will testify and the judges will cross-examine them to make sure they're telling the truth. sheker ha'ed. Sheker anabachiv. And it turns out that the witnesses were lying. Then, top of the next page, 1038. Then, the Torah does not say we tell them all go home and nothing happens. Pasuk 19. V'asisim lo We do to the witnesses what they tried to do to the defendant. Meaning, you testified that the defendant should be guilty of capital punishment, should be put to death, and it's found out that you're lying, we're going to do it to you. And we're going to execute you for your testimony. Hold on a second. Two minutes ago, Whitman said that if you find out that the witnesses are conflicted, you, you just tell them all to go home. What What's happening here? So what's happening here is this is a specialized case. The Talmud explains this is not the case that I talked about before. This is a specialized case. It's called Eid Zomen. If two witnesses, one set of witnesses comes and says, Reuven killed Shimon, and another set comes and says, no, Reuven did not kill Shimon, they conflict we don't know who's telling the truth. The truth, go home. But here, the case is like this: two witnesses come and say Reuven killed Shimon. Another two witnesses come and they say, you know what? We don't know about Ruvain. We don't know about Shimon. Maybe he did kill him. Maybe he didn't kill him. One thing we can tell you. These two witnesses could not possibly have testified. Because on the day and the place that they say it happened, they weren't there. They were with us in another city. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's why witnesses always have to be able to give the time and place of what they're testifying about. So in this case... The two sets of witnesses are not really conflicting with each other. The second set of witnesses, I'm not saying that you're, you're wrong in what you said. I'm just saying that you weren't there to testify about it. In that case, that's where the Torah says a special rule. And without the Torah saying it, I don't know if any of us would come up with this logically. The Torah says, we listen to the second witnesses. And we do to the first witnesses what they intended to do to the defendant. Now, there's something unique about this law in the entire Torah because these two witnesses who testified that Reuven killed Shema, What's going to happen to them? They're going to be executed. Capital punishment. But just hold on a second. They wanted Ruvain to be found guilty and to be executed of murder. Guilty of murder and executed. But they didn't succeed. They didn't succeed. They testified. And before anything else could happen, these other witnesses came and said, no, you were with us in another place at that time. So, Nothing is happening to the defendant. They wanted something to happen to the defendant. What did they do to make something happen to the the defendant? They spoke words. They testified in court. Says the Talmud, there's no other example where a person is punished because of, in, in, in court, because of the words that they say. Of course, if you lie, you're punished by God, it's it's wrong, it's immoral. Isn't it a commandment? Yeah. Yes, it's a commandment, but you don't get punished in court for it. This is the only example where a person could be punished in court for words. I want to just put that in parentheses because the commentators point out there is actually one other exception. But the Talmud says this is the only case. Let's just let's just deal with it simply. What's the lesson you learn from this? So, first of all, don't go to court and testify if it's not true. If you weren't there. Don't do that. That's okay. But most of us, we're not often testifying in court about a murder case. But I want to tell you something. This mitzvah, this law, is extremely relevant to every single one of us. Because what it says is, I can forfeit my life. I can give up my right to stay alive because of the words that I say. The words that I say create reality. Now, the truth is, usually we don't act like that. Usually we think, well, it's just words, right? Sticks and stones, but words can never hurt me, and, and so what, and it's fake news, and all right, so a person lied, and all right, so it's words, but it's words. What did I do? What did I do? But that's not true. That's not true. Words really do create a reality. They can really hurt people. And and they can help people. They can save people's lives. Mm -hmm. They can lift people up. And they can take people down. The mitzvah of Eid This this mitzvah teaches us the power of words. And it's not an accident that we always read this Parsha just a couple of weeks before the High Holidays. Because, what's going on on the high holidays? Now, I understand Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I understand honey cake is very important. (laughs) I understand. And I understand that having people over for dinner is very important. And I understand that buying new clothes is very important. I understand there are a lot of important aspects. But the main part of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for a religious Jew is prayer. what does prayer help if the words don't mean anything if the words don't mean anything then what am I doing here sleeping talking reading the supplemental reading booklets right but not praying because because it's it's not real it's not we learn this Parsha and one of the lessons that we ought to gain from it is to remind ourselves, to inspire ourselves we're coming to Rosh Hashanah. Words create a reality. And we need to use our words to be able to save our lives. Our lives are at stake on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. What's going to happen to us in the coming years is at stake. How do we affect it? We affect it through our words. Our words can, can save lives. Our lives, other lives... We have these phrases about the High Holidays, Seek out God when He is close. And God is close during the High Holidays. How do we seek Him out? With words. If we don't think that our words are real, if we don't think that our words have an effect in this this world, then, then what meaning will it have? So we need to try, when we read this section on Shabbos, to think to ourselves, what does it mean? A person could be, God forbid, put to death just because of the words. No actions, just because of the words. And we can save life just because of words. And that happens on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So I hope you'll think about that during the holiday, on Shabbos, and then and then during the holidays. Okay. I want to go to another, a second piece. What I want to share with you is partially based on an essay by Rabbi Alex Ozar. And a similar approach is expressed in an essay by Rabbi David Stav. Both very wonderful rabbis in Israel. And <coughs> It concerns a passage in this week's Parsha that is very, very strange, very hard to understand. And even after we discuss it, there are going to be parts of it that are still going to be hard to understand. But I think that it has a very important message for all of us. So, I said before, our Parsha is largely about the judicial system. The beginning of the Parsha talks about appointing judges and the requirement for judges to be honest and truthful and not to take bribes. And the Parsha goes on to talk about the judicial system and imposing penalties and punishments on people. The Torah talks about what kind of political system there should be, talks about a monarch, a king, and even the limits on the authority even of a king. So the parsha is about justice and, and law and the judicial system. And it's clear from the Torah in this parsha and in other places that just to take the example of God forbid of murder murder is a terrible, terrible crime, the most serious crime. One of the most serious crimes. And when there is a murder, God forbid, it's got to be dealt with. And the judicial system bringing someone to justice is, of course, you're not going to bring the dead person back to life. That's true. But it is necessary to cleanse the society from the pollution, from the dirtiness that was caused by this terrible crime. And it's clear from our Parsha and other sections that the need to be able to Exact punishment against the murderer is not only for the sake of the victim and to punish the criminal, but it's also for society. Society needs that there be a response to murder. Society needs that there be a system of law and order. The Torah uses a verse, a, a phrase here, and it's used many times in the Torah. Ubiarta haramikir and you will thereby uproot the evil from within your community. It's not okay to live in a system, in a in a, uh, uh, an environment of lawlessness. You have to bring people to justice. There's a woman, Jill Levy, who wrote an article and she said the most important thing that you can do to prevent murder, if you want to reduce the rate of murder, the most important thing that you can do is to prevent murders from going unsolved. The rate of unsolved murders is an indicator of the rate of murder. And it, it, this is based on on uh, research, but it, it makes sense. If people live in a society and they have the idea that it's I'm not going to be held accountable, they're much more likely to do it. And when people live in a society where they know that they're going to be held accountable, their murder rate drops Tremendously. In fact, now listen to this. This is, this is astounding. Now these statistics are from the United States. From 2010 to 2015, the murder rate in the U.S. was falling. And it was less than 15,000 per year. I'm not saying that that's okay, but it's all relative. Starting in 2015, the numbers started to rise. 2016, the number of murders in the U.S. was higher than the 20-year average previous to that. 2016, in 59% of cases of murder, an arrest was made. Doesn't necessarily mean that they were found guilty. I'm only talking about an arrest. 59%. In large cities, 52%. Some places, like, for example, Chicago, which has a terrible, terrible murder rate, 30%. If you go back to 1965, the rate was 91%. In other words, the trend in the United States is that America is becoming a place where murder is rampant and without consequence. More and more proportionally, more and more people murders, there's no consequence. No arrest, no one held accountable. Which is which is a spiral because the the lower the arrest rate, the higher the murder rate is going to go up. So what happens in a situation where there is no perpetrator that we know of? What happens? If you can't arrest anybody, well, in the judicial system, in the U.S., in Canada, if you can't arrest anybody, that's it. There's there's nothing you could do. And that means that there is no Whatever terms you want to use, there's no closure for the family, there's no um, holding society responsible, there's no, there's nothing. It's it. It's just empty. And that's where the Torah comes in. So I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to page 1042. This is the end of the parsha very strange but let's take a look and see if we can understand page 1042 the middle of page Pasuk number 1 when you come across a murdered body on the ground in Israel we're talking about in the land of Israel not anywhere else lo no And we're not able to find a murderer. So you have a victim of murder, but we don't know who did it. We don't arrest anybody. We can't find anybody. So Jewish law says, we don't just leave it alone. We have a ceremony. It's a very strange ceremony. And it goes like this. Pesach number two. Then the elders and the judges have to come out they have to measure the distance from the corpse, the murder body to all of the nearby towns to find out which town, which city is closest then number 3 then the city that is closest to the body (laughs) the elders of the city perform a ritual called Egla Arufa. They take a calf Mm -hmm. and, four, they take this calf to a river and they push the calf over the edge and the calf is killed. Then, Passik hey, the kohanim the priests what about the come yeah. what about the Okay I didn't, get, uh, I didn't want to get I didn't want to I didn't want to upset anybody <laughs> Then the kohanim the kohanim come and Passik 6 the elders come and Yirchatzu es Yedeim, they wash their hands. That phrase, I'm washing my hands of this uh, tragedy, comes from here. They wash their hands. Now, look at the bottom of the page. Pazek Zion. Anuva va'amru. Now, these are the elders and the judges of the city that's closest to the corpse. And remember, there's no murderer that we found. And then they say the following words: Yodenu lo shafru, top of the next page, es Adam hazer veinenu lo We didn't do it. Wait a second. The judges, you think they did it? We didn't commit this murder. Who accused you? We didn't find a murderer. Then the next pasik, pasik has. God, forgive your people. What do you mean forgive your people? We didn't do it. You're not going to forgive the murderer, just we can't find the murderer. Who else do you have to forgive? I didn't do it. Why do the judges say, we didn't do it? If we didn't do it, so then why do you need forgiveness? Very, very strange. Very, very strange. So, I want to share this analysis with you. And it goes like this. There is an underlying theme of this passage, and that is as follows. When blood is spilled, every person is responsible. Not only is it true that every person is responsible, but every person is required to make it clear that we are responsible. We have to have a public ceremony to make this collective statement. Let me describe. Let's go back over the details. Now I want to provide, I want to fill in some of the details that the Talmud provides in explaining exactly how this was done. Let's talk about the measuring. The Talmud makes it clear that you have to make a measurement. How do you make a measurement? I don't know. I guess you take a tape measure and you put one end next to the body and you put the other end to the closest town and you measure how many feet, how many meters. You measure it. What if it's obvious? What if the body is right outside of a town? And there are no other towns nearby. What do you have to measure for? Says the Talmud, no. You still have to measure. You have to measure even if it's obvious which one is clear, closest. Says the Talmud more, you have to measure not only to the town that is obviously the closest, you have to measure to every town around even if it's obvious that this one is closer. I can see by looking. This one is closer, that one is further. It's obvious. You can look on Google Maps. It's obvious. It's clear. No. The ceremony of the measuring is required. Why? says Rabbi Samsorophul Hirsch. Because the, the the ceremony of the measuring is meant to indicate, in a certain sense, every town is responsible we're measuring to your town and we're measuring to your town and we're measuring to your town we're measuring to every town we're not singling out any one town by the way just because the body is closest to that town that's not any indication that what? that the murderer is in that town that there's no indication of such a thing the Torah says that the elders of the town that's closest go out and perform this ritual but you have to measure to every town because says Rabbi Hirsch Every town has a responsibility. Who comes to this ceremony? Well, the elders of the closest town, yes, but also the judges from Yerushalayim and the Kohanim, the priests from Yerushalayim. In other words, it's a local event that affects this town, the closest town, But it's not a local event, it's a national event. It must have national representation because a loss of life is a national issue. And by the way, it's very interesting, the Talmud specifically says, those people in Yerushalayim, they're not allowed to send their assistant. You can't send the Vice President. They had to go themselves. And then they come and say, Saddam we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Who thought that they did it? I mean, they're the the elders, the judges, who would have thought that they did it? So there's several different opinions. I want to give you the opinion of Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is a very important medieval commentator. He says as follows. He asked the question that I asked before. If they say we didn't do it, so one question is, why do they have to say we didn't do it? Who thought you did it? But if they say you didn't do it, why is the next verse, forgive your people? We didn't do it. So why do we need to be forgiven? Says the Ibn Ezra, even if it's true that the elders and the judges are not guilty of the murder, they are guilty of contributing factors. Listen to the words of the Ibn Ezra in translation we may have been negligent in not securing the dangerous roadways. In other words, if I am an an elder, a judge, a a leader of a town, and I don't make sure that the roads out of my town are safe, that they're well lit, that police are patrolling to make sure there's no crimes, then... If someone does get hurt there, I'm not guilty of murder, but I am guilty. And I need to be forgiven because I was negligent. Go one step further. That's the Ibn Ezra. The Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud says, what was the the guilt it means, judges, what do they do? The judges say, we were not guilty in overlooking other murders. We were not guilty in turning a blind eye to crime. Thereby, like I said before, leading to an increase in the crime rate. We're not guilty of that. We held people accountable. We have a judicial system. We go after murderers to hold them accountable. Okay? That's the Talmud Yerushalmi. The Talmud Babli, the Babylonian Talmud, has a slightly different version. It goes like this. We did not allow this victim to be in our town And to leave without directions. Because if you have a person in your town or in your home, the Talmud says from here, you have a guest in your home and they're leaving. If it's a person that doesn't know their way around, you need to make sure that they know where they're going. Because if they get lost, something terrible could happen to them. Or, another layer If I am a leader of a town and I don't make sure that every single person in the town is taken care of has a job, well, what do people do if they don't have a job? Some of them resort to crime. Well, here's the thing about crime. If you hold somebody up because you need the money because you're hungry, there's a pretty good chance he's going to resist and you could get killed. So what they're saying is, we did not create an environment where people were going hungry and they had to resort to crime, which may have led to this person being killed. In other words, what you learn from this is, the leadership of a community Microcosm, macrocosm, the leadership of a community is responsible to make sure that they are preventing murder, to punish offenders when they can find them, to ensure safe passage to and from a city, to make sure that no one has to face danger alone. And to support public assistance that nobody becomes desperate. All of those secondary kind of causes we require the nation to have this ceremony to state we didn't actually pull the trigger but we still need to be forgiven because we did not do all we should have done. We did not create the kind of society that would have prevented this from happening. I saw something amazing on Facebook. It happens sometimes. (laughs) It's a quote by Desmond Tutu. But the quote's a good quote, okay? It's a good quote. There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. That is rufa. That's the whole point. We need, as a society, to find out the reasons why the crimes are happening. Just because we don't have anybody to blame, anyone to punish, we all have to come and take responsibility for not going upstream and find out why they're falling in. There's a commentator to the Torah, Bukhar Shar, and he says, the lesson that we learn from this passage is the massive engagement and exactingness with which God burdens us over one life. The loss of a single life is a national problem. If there's someone that you can convict of the crime, fine. But if there's not, everyone has to get involved. A single life, the loss of a single life that nobody cares about and nobody knows about, nobody knows this person, no one knows what happened to him. Says the Torah... There needs to be massive engagement. This dramatic, strange ceremony to teach us the importance of every single life. And lastly, the words of Hamikdavar, the Natsiv. The land can have no atonement for blood that is shed on it, save with responsibility alone. The response to murder has got to be Taking responsibility. Taking responsibility for society to make sure it doesn't happen. And that is a responsibility that every single citizen has. And that's the lesson of this partial of the Torah.